Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name is Jed. My name is the best. Uh, so, officially, this is the... So, Jay was going to come on and tell everyone why he is taking a break. We we did a Patreon episode where we discussed uh, him taking a break. Um, but he gave me three reasons to tell y'all that he's taking a break. Uh, number one, he's on a Bigfoot excursion. Uh, number two, he's going to Stephen Furtick's new seminary. I, I like that one. Uh, and number three, uh, tell them I'm going on set for the shooting of John Wick 3. So, <laughs> so take your pick on whichever one of those you want to believe. That's where he is. Um, no, but he'll be back, I think, in like three or four weeks. And then Debesh is going to be our uh, like tertiary third member when he can't jump on. The self the self-proclaimed Darren McFadden of the podcast game. Who is Darren McFadden? No, oh, he's a backup running back for Ezekiel Elliott. Don't bring sports into here. <laughs> <laughs> Did you win? Oh, I won a, a congregation in your face. I won game one of our fantasy football league. Nice. Yeah, I won. I won with flying colors. It was nice. I barely... I Well... I won two, and I lost the league I'm in with you. Yeah, yeah. Damn, you're in three? Yeah. Well, the congregation one is just for funsies. There's no money. Uh, but I did, beat, yeah. I did beat Jay's wife with a kicker by, like, three points. So she's pissed. Nice. nice. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, uh, we got a new Patreon. Speaking of congregation, um, Adam Brewster. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for the money. It will go directly to Pop Rocks and Coke. Nice. I'm just send, kidding. Send me some in the mail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, we're trying to. I also want to know if we, if y'all saw that Dare logo I did. If I made T-shirts, would anyone buy one? I'm, I really just want to make it just because. But if anybody has interest in that, let me know, and I will like give me some sizes, and I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. So, my mom texted me with an interesting question, Debesh. Mm. She said, "This, how did she say it? She was like, forgive me if I'm, she always says, like, forgive me if I'm stepping over the line. It's like, mom, you're never stepping over the line. How nice. I know, yeah, yeah how nice. <laughs> uh, but she was like, so what do drug addicts do during like a hurricane or a natural disaster? And I was like, <laughs> all I did was I sent her a one word answer in caps locks and I just said panic. <laughs> but so that reminded me, so I was in rehab for Hurricane Katrina. Oh Where, man. What were you using? So I was using, um, I, uh, I went to my buddy's house and, um, we got a couple of cases of beer. Uh, we made some opium tea. Um, out of like, I, like opium oh, out of po- seeds or poppies or no poppies at that what? time. And yeah, and then I oh you didn't oh yeah yeah we uh we would order like opium pods off of eBay and um and just like grind it down into a tea. And this was before I was doing like hard opiate. Did it work? Oh, did it? Oh my God! I mean, it was insane. I mean, I had like, I was just scratched. Like, I was just like so. 
I mean, just nail marks. I mean, it was like, it was just like really, really strong for like 14 hours. God, (laughs) it was was intense. And especially I hadn't had built up a a huge tolerance at that point. So, um, yeah, it worked pretty well. And at that time I was on probation and I had a sneaky suspicion I wouldn't have to see my PO for a while. Yeah. Yeah, so like, so, like, I got someone to front me some, some weed, and I drove uptown to get it. He was like, I'm going out of town to Bush. It's in the drawer. Just leave me the money. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. And I <laughs> totally will. I do. It was just in your drawer, man. on looters. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's just floating down the, you know, down the Mississippi River somewhere. Um, so, yeah. all that was... Uh-huh. That oh, just quick side note that happened yeah. during during the Lafayette floods. We uh we abandoned our house right, and I'm yeah. sta- I'm at, sitting at Kaylee's house, and I, I just like sat up, and I was like, oh my god, I left twenty six hundred dollars in cash in my drawer. And I was like, oh no, and I was like, I gotta get back there. I gotta get back there, and there was no way to get back to my house. And I was like, oh jeez, it was still there. But anyway, it was still there. Thank God. Um. So all that was going down. Um, it was insane. I mean, we stayed. We stayed at his house. We got. We got really messed up. Um, my parents didn't know where I was. Like, well, they knew I was at his house, but they couldn't get in touch with me. All the phones were down. Um, after a while of just insanity and us like go, like running the streets, helping old ladies get trees off of their power lines. Well, while well, the other person like went in and raided their medicine cabinet, no. like, <laughs> I remember I had some bitch. like living amends. Uh, you know, the only <laughs> the only the only bad thing I did Katrina related was uh, I went down there. Uh, I guess like the hospitals down there were just handing out Lortab prescriptions to like the indigent population. I dude, I don't know, <laughs> but this home like multiple homeless people just walked up to me. Or I don't know if there were whatever people uh-huh. on the street at that time, yeah. and they were like, "Hey, go fill this script for me, and I'll you know break you off or whatever." Yeah. And it was yeah, this, this yeah. dude like hobbled up to me, and he had like uh, crutches, and I totally jacked that guy. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> at least I got trees off of power lines. I know, <laughs> man. Well, maybe I. Yeah, I gotta. Yeah, that's amends. Living amends. <laughs> um so all that was going down and then like and then like finally my parents and my sister like just like stormed through his house like we gotta get the fuck out of here like like get in the car and all i remember is i was like man i need to have something to like wean myself off or whatever i'm on so i just grabbed the opium tea right in front of my parents and him and i was like all right man i'm just gonna take this tea and leave and like uh, he could like no oh, dude, he couldn't like, say no. <laughs> you checkmated him, dude. Wow. Oh, I bet he was livid, dude. I don't know he was mad. I don't think we ever talked about it either. <laughs> he's still he's, he sitting, forgot. he's sitting in a room somewhere like that stupid mom. <laughs> if I ever see him again, I'll give him something to tea about. Yeah. Oh, that's man. funny though. but yeah uh, I, I, I and then the other it, what i told my mom that junkies do is go loot the pharmacies that's yeah like that that is what happened in baton rouge is like the 
like you would there was no the scarcity was not in effect like there were oxys no, everywhere it, oxys it, it, and benzos everywhere it's a, it floods man i know i in fact i know one crazy guy in lakeview and he, he what he did was so he lived in the lake in the lakeview part of new orleans there's houses um you know on a lake and he pretty much got in a canoe and he canoed his way to like this rich part of Lakeview and just like a pile like like TVs, you know, just like oh, the most my stuff on just like canoe like canoe back to <laughs> I wish that's something like I want a picture of. Like just this dude <laughs> just with like seventeen sixty inch H D TVs on a freaking canoe and it's all like it's like sunken like barely down. staying <laughs> afloat. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the water's like deep I'm gonna get him. Yeah, that's funny, man. Um well, yeah, well, this is a uh, long interview. Let's get to it. This dude is, you're about to hear me woefully uh, outgunned here. This dude's so smart. Uh, Chris Date from the Rethinking Hell podcast. We're just going to talk about hell, man. It's a very light and lofty subject. We're going to talk about, you know, people burning in hell for eternity and what that's like. What the hell? What the hell? That's what we should call the episode. <laughs> what the hell? So, so for our listeners to get a feel, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Chris? Well, my name is Chris Date, and I'm a representative of a ministry called Rethinking Hell, um, where we promote and defend an alternative to the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious torment um, in favor of an alternative, which we'll, which we'll discuss uh, during the course of the interview. I'm a software engineer by by trade, have been my entire career, uh, but I'm hoping one day to change careers and go into teaching at the seminary level. And to that end, I have just recently graduated uh, with my bachelor's from Liberty University, uh, bachelor's in religion, and am beginning a uh, master's at Fuller Theological Seminary in theology, um, starting in just a few weeks, in fact. I'm married and uh, have been for about 17 years, and I've got four boys. And I guess that's uh, that's it for now, I suppose. Yeah, that's it. Should be a compliment. I definitely thought you were already like a professor, so I think oh. you'll, I think you'll do fine. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but something interesting happened when I emailed you to come on. Um, I think I heard about you from uh, Pastor with No Answers first, and then I started listening to uh, Rethinking Hell. <clears throat> but you said that um, you actually had quit drinking four years ago. So that I, I would definitely like to uh, touch on that for a second. I've doing this podcast. We, um, we, ca- I kind of split, I'll do one episode recovery and then one episode kind of faith theology, that sort of thing. But what <laughs> I've been noticing is the, the lines get blurred <laughs> more often than not, which is a, which is a good surprise. But yeah. So what, uh, how did that come about? Well, uh, as an adult, um, 
as a young adult, I, I didn't have a drinking problem. Uh, at least I don't think I, I don't consider myself to have had one. And I don't think that my wife would say that I did either. But over the years, um, it got worse and worse. And, and about, you know, by the time about four years or so rolled around, it had gotten to the point where blacking out was the rule rather than the exception. Uh, and so, you know, every, almost every night of the week I was drinking, um, you know, a pint of, of, uh, whiskey. My, I, I wasn't into it for the taste. I was into it for the getting blasted out of my mind and I wanted to do so in the cheapest way possible. And so I would get the cheap bottom shelf whiskey, the Evan Williams, the, oh, yeah. the generic brand. The gut uh, brand. the, yeah, exactly. Um, I would have a pint of that and then still have like a six pack of Coors Light or something on top of that. Again, I wasn't into it for the flavor, hence the Coors Light. I was just, yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to get uh, drunk. Were you working from home as a software engineer? No, it's just I did this at night. Oh, um, okay. around, so this I when, start when we got home from work. That's right. Uh, we, as around the time that my boys were starting to go to bed is when I would start drinking, and um, you know, fortunately, it didn't get to the point where it was interfering with my day to day life. But you know, at night, I was often I when I black out. Apparently, my personality was very different and I wasn't very kind to my wife and um, I'm sure that I wasn't kind to my kids at times as well. So, uh, I mean, to make a long story short, um, uh, about four years ago, or it was, it was, I think in June. Um, so this would be just a little over four years now. Uh, I gave it up and, um, and then another six months after that gave up smoking cigarettes. Cause that was another thing that I had a big problem with. Yeah. Um, I started vaping, but still, that's better than smoking, but uh, still not nicotine free. That's a that's yeah. a whole another monster. It is, and and but and it's very difficult. Both of them are, but so, um, but it's certainly been uh, a, uh, it's been worth it. That's for sure. How did you? So how did you quit drinking? You didn't uh, go to twelve step fellowships, did you? Just my I went to um, a couple of uh, what what's it called again? Celebrate, Celebrate recovery. Recovery. Yeah. Right. Um, I went initially what prompted me to um, uh, to to give it up entirely was my mom is also a recovering alcoholic. I, I could tell you lots of stories about my childhood, um, but uh, we both, you know, realized it was time to stop. And so I said, well, hey, why don't we go to celebrate recovery together? And we went to one together and then I went to one or two after that by myself. Um, and, you know, I don't have an explanation for why it wasn't a, an enormous challenge for me, but you know, after those first couple of meetings, I, I didn't really um, uh, experience the need to go to any sort of recovery program on a on a regular basis. I've just yeah. I was just able to give it up cold turkey. So yeah, you're you're that I've definitely met people that happens to where God just um, takes it from them, and I I believe yeah. God did it for me. Um, I ended up going to prison and. Um, I was a heroin addict, among other things, but there was a one point that uh, he took it from me, but I kind of, I was still, like, struggling with pornography real bad, and so it, I kind of, like, a, it, it, I left the door open for sin, I guess is what really happened, and uh, so it kind of crept back in there, but that's awesome, though, I wouldn't, uh, that's awesome, you I wish that would happen, but... Well, I wish, I wish that would happen in, in other areas of my life, <laughs> no, <laughs> you right, know? right, right. Um, for some reason, God chose to make uh, that, you know, giving that up, in fact, smoking as well, a lot easier than um, uh, than it's been struggling, you know, with other sins. So, um, yeah, it's, that's my story. And it's fun. Um, I find it funny, too, because the definitely the popular thing in 
uh, theological circles now is like craft beer and <laughs> drinking uh, fine scotch and, you know, the whole C.S. Lewis uh, scotch and cigars thing. And it's like, well, not really for me these days, but... Uh, yeah, in fact, it's it's kind of funny because um, just a couple of months ago, my um, a, a few of the people at Rethinking Hell and I started planning the uh, the next annual conference, which is going to be in the Dallas Fort Worth area next year Ooh. in March. And um, there's a there's a ministry out of Fort Worth called the uh, Bible and Beer Consortium, I think, and they have these <laughs> they have these events at pubs where they bring Christians and atheists out together and they discuss. Uh, various issues with apologetics relevance, and uh, they invited me to come give a presentation at one of these beer and Bible consortium things. And uh, you know, there's going to be <laughs> people drinking the, exactly right. what you're describing, the, the beer right. and, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, unfortunately, I won't be able to partake, but that's okay. Yeah, it is. I, I do hate the uh, when people treat you like a leper, and they're like, "Now make sure you don't smell it or anything." Like it's like, yeah. no, believe me, we're good. You know, <laughs> that's right, exactly. Um, man, well, I might have to bring you on for an, an episode just about that we um i had we interviewed my mom and dad to get their point of view from growing up being straight laced christians and having me turn out to be a drug addict and alcoholic but i think we could devote an entire episode to that um <laughs> if you'd be up for it maybe sometime yeah sure um, i mean if we can uh, come up with something to talk about for sure yeah for sure but let's let's go to the topic at hand the much lighter hell <laughs> yeah, a lot, a much, a much lighter topic than than uh, alcoholism, right? Yep. So how how did you? So you're a software engineer. How did you start accruing this professorial knowledge? Like, and what what uh, has it always? Have you always just been interested in theology? And then, in, what was your kind of journey through that? Have, how long have you been saved? That sort of thing. Sure. Uh, when my wife and I got married, uh, when we were 20 or maybe I had just turned 21. No, I, I had not yet turned 21. Um, but anyway, we, we got married when we were both atheists. Um, I, oh, wow. I did not know. Yeah. That. My parents, um, you know, ha profess a, a Christian faith, but it was not part of, um, it wasn't, wasn't part of our daily lives. I never went to, uh, church, you know, I didn't have any sort of um, uh, over Christian influence in my life, and I remember that by the time I was in high school, I was making fun of Christians on a regular basis. Um, and my wife and I, we got married as as real staunch atheists. In fact, we were insistent upon getting married by a justice of the peace rather than by, uh, you know, a pastor or a minister of some sort. And the uh, justice of the peace showed up drunk and forgot to have us kiss each other and forgot to have us give no. our vows. <laughs> so there's a there's a whole story around that too. Um, but, uh, about a year later after being uh, a year after getting married, we had our first son and it was very shortly after that, that, um, there's not really a whole lot of a story here, but I became a believer, uh, on a round about what age? Well, I would have been 21. Okay. Um, almost 22. So, and I'm 37 now, almost okay. 38. So yeah, we're talking about 16 years of being a believer. Um, and uh, prior to that point, I had no interest in theology. I had no uh, knowledge of biblical things. But when I became a believer, I uh, quickly, you know, encountered cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, and uh, quickly developed an appreciation for the importance of apologetics and biblical exegesis and and sound theology. And so I just sort of poured my uh, my mind and my time into that kind of thing. Um, 
And, you know, or very early on, I knew it was something that I'd love to do on a more, you know, full-time basis. But by this time, I'd already started my uh, career in software. I'd already had a kid and, and was starting to develop a family. And I just didn't think that um, changing up my career was something that was an option for me. Right. Um, and so, and so, you know, over the years, my wife became a believer as well. And, and of course, that's awesome. Um, that and awesome. I very much so. And, uh, you know, I got increasingly interested in, in Bible and theology and stuff. I started a podcast several years ago and interviewed a bunch of people. Um, but then about four years ago, I think it was, a friend of mine um, began a seminary degree online at Liberty University. Uh, and I realized as a result of talking to him that getting a higher education, even as a full-time software engineer and a husband and a father, was in fact something that was feasible. Uh, and so uh, I, you know, I got my degree at Liberty, which I just completed a few months ago, and uh, got accepted into Fuller, and so on and so forth. So it, it's, um, uh, so it, it was, it was just a fascination with what the Bible has to say and with theology and doing podcasting and blogging and stuff that got me, uh, the, the, you know, that. The, resulted in me learning what it is that I've learned and becoming super interested in it. And, and I've, I've recently um, become exceedingly jealous of your type of conversion experience because you're essentially coming <laughs> from a blank slate as opposed to being raised with all these like misnomers and misconceptions. And I was raised. Yeah. What's that? I said, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Cause I, I found myself, I, I grew up, um, South Carolina, uh, Southern Presbyterian, um, your standard uh, late 90s, early aughts, evangelical youth group, that sort of thing, and uh, fell away or tried to run away, obviously, um, did 10 years ripping and running and all that stuff, and so it's been the past, I'll have three years sober on September 23rd, and that's coming up, actually, and... Congratulations. Thank you. Um so it's been this this three years, this time that um, I hate using the word, but I felt reborn again. Like I really started pursuing reading the Bible. Uh, this is when I discovered podcasts like Bad Christian and Password No Answers and yours. And um, so I've been re having to. I grew up with a very legalistic. Um, for some reason, the only thing I heard was that God was this judging. I carried the guilt complex, all that stuff. So I've been reassembling like what I believe. And so the topic of hell and stuff like that has always worried me and interested me. So when I heard you give the argument you gave for annihilation, it was a uh, pretty cool. What got you into <laughs> hell specifically or what made you think that that was the topic to base like the podcast around and all that? Well, so um, I began my own personal podcast uh, several years ago. It was called, and I say was because I haven't really kept it up, and I'm not sure that I'll be able to. Uh, it was called Deopologetics, which is sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics. And um, at the time, you know, I wasn't uh, super focused on the topic of hell, Um but I was involved in, or one of the areas of interest of mine was eschatology. I, I'm what some people call a partial preterist, and I remember that I was part of a ministry called the Preterist, uh, the, uh, the Preterist Podcast. Can hmm? we uh, define some terms? Oh yeah. So eschatology is the study of the end times. Um, most 
Christians in America or many Christians in America are only familiar with uh, sort of the um, left behind style of Christian eschatology where um, there's going to be a seven year tribulation in our future at the beginning of which the church is going to disappear and fly up to heaven. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and, and then will come to save us all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the church will return after seven years and reign on earth with uh, Christ for a, for a thousand years, and at the end of that, there will be the final judgment and so forth. But um, I was part of a ministry. Uh, this is another view that I came to some time after becoming a Christian. Uh, I realized, uh, or I learned that the Bible doesn't appear to teach that view of the end times. At least I don't think that it does. Uh, preterism is just a word that means past. Uh, pastism is what you might call it. And basically the idea of preterism is that most biblical prophecy, not all, but most biblical prophecies that we have become accustomed to thinking await fulfillment in our future were in fact fulfilled in our past. Uh, and so many things that we think of, the, the, the 666, the number of the beast, was you know, Nero, the, the, right? Uh, well, or, well, I think, well, it, I, I think it was, yeah, let's, yeah, I let's think was, if you don't mind, let's stay here for a second. So what do you, what have you discovered that the Bible does say about the end times? If you can. Yeah. The, the Bible pretty clearly teaches that something momentous, uh, was on the verge of happening, and Jesus and his apostles assured listeners and, and readers that this momentous thing was going to happen within the lifetime of their contemporaries. And so you have Jesus, for example, in Matthew 24, saying that all these things will come to pass before this generation uh, passes away, before this generation is gone. Um, and, you know, I, I know how many Christians that hold to that sort of left behind view I just described, how they answer that text, but I don't think any of those answers do what Jesus said, uh, justice, uh, because it's not just he who says it. Um, you've got the book of uh, Revelation, both at the beginning and at the end. John uses two or three different Greek ways of describing just how near, just how soon these events were on the horizon. And so I think what the Bible teaches is that uh, in the... Um, uh, within the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries, uh, specifically around 70 A.D., which is one of the most well-attested historical events that um, that we know of, uh, the the um, it was promised that basically that apostate Israel, apostate Judaism, would be judged by God for having rejected uh, her Messiah. Um, and sure enough, in 70 AD, the Roman armies sacked Jerusalem, literally tore every stone of the temple off of each other so that there wasn't one stone left upon another, just as Jesus predicted would happen. Um, and then I think that ushered – I think that was the beginning of what is sort of symbolically portrayed in the book of Revelation as a thousand years. Um, yeah. And so – Right. So, so I think that, and now you know, you, you mentioned Nero, um, and we could get we could get into that. I think that Nero is probably the I is probably the uh, emperor or king, to use John's language in the Book of Revelation, whose um, whose name is identified by the number six hundred sixty six. We can do a whole <laughs> a yeah. whole other show about all of this, so I won't get into too much detail. Um, but uh, you know the, the the time of Jacob's trouble that a lot of left behind type people think refers to the tribulation in our future. I think was a reference to what happened to the Israelites in 70 A.D. You know something people don't realize something like 
two million um, two or, or more uh, Jewish unbelievers, you know, Jewish non-Christians died when Rome sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know where the Christian Jews were? They uh, heeded Jesus' warning, and in a in a brief break, when the when the Roman armies pulled away from Jerusalem before they returned a few months later, uh, the Jewish Christians who recalled what Jesus warning them about, uh, they they fled into the wilderness and escaped um, escaped this wrath, you know, this, this onslaught from the Roman armies. So, uh, th- anyway, th- the point is, is that, um, this was an incredible, I mean, the temple was destroyed. You gotta understand the temple was so magnificent that when people would from miles away, when they would, when they would peek over the hills, uh, or when they'd be walking toward Jerusalem over the hills, they would see the sunlight shining off of the, uh, off of the temple and it would be blinding. Um, it was magnificent. This was where God's manifest presence appeared over the top of the ark uh, or, or in the Holy of Holies, you know, in the temple. So there was no way that any, um, the, the, this is where the the uh, priest had to sacrifice uh, on the part of Israel in order, you know, for her sins. And there was no, there was no way, first of all, that the Jewish, Jews at that time would have anticipated that the temple was about to be destroyed. And, so, and secondly, it was a total change of, of life because Jews could no longer go to the temple to do their sacrifices and so forth. So this was a, a huge, unanticipated change in the life of Israel. And I think that that's what Jesus and his apostles promised was going to happen in, the, in their lifetime, in the lifetime of their contemporaries. And is, I think that we've, yeah. Is there something, I can't even remember the word for it, but is, is there something that revelation is that some prophecies are past and future simultaneously. Am I completely making that up, or is that no? A- you're not. There's there, there appears to be some precedent for biblical prophecies having what we would say uh, what we call a dual fulfillment. Right. Um, and so we have prophecies that um, had an initial fulfillment. Um, take for example. Uh, you know that famous passage in Isaiah where um, Isaiah is promised that the virgin would give, or or maiden, depending upon how you translate that, uh, would give birth to a son. Um, that pr- prophecy actually wasn't, you know, originally about Christ. It was about uh, a historical figure at that time. Um, but it found a dual fulfillment, a, a larger, more grand fulfillment in uh, uh, in the conception of Christ by Mary. Um, and the Holy Spirit. So you have this, and that's one of several examples where you have sort of an immediate fulfillment in a, in a future one. It is possible then um, that these prophecies that the Bible taught were going to find their fulfillment in the first century have a dual fulfillment, you know, and there, and maybe there's some, some things awaiting in our future um, that because, are sort of the... Oh, mm-hmm. Sorry, because other, otherwise, so what if if Revelation is taken out, so what does the Bible say like about, or does the Bible even talk about our end times? Well, sure it does, because like I said, I, I think we find ourselves in what the, the book of Revelation describes symbolically as a thousand years, but the oh, book of Revelation doesn't end there. You right, know, the, no, when, the, exactly. when this thousand years ends in, in this vision that John saw, um, Satan gathers uh, the armies against um the the camp of the saints and then Christ returns and destroys them and then uh, there's a resurrection of the dead and so forth so we preterists would say that yes there's still there are still prophecies awaiting fulfillment in our future most notably the resurrection of all the dead the future judgment and so forth 
Um, but whether or not there's a second fulfillment to all these things that we think were fulfilled in the first century, we just don't know. Gotcha. Um, so it could happen, but we, we would argue that we don't have um, any con- – we can't have any confidence that there is going to be in our future a beast, you know, that there's going to be a, a figure represented by the number 666 and so forth. Right. Okay, well, since we're getting toward destruction, I guess give us a quick, or however long, let's define, give us your standing beliefs on hell. Yeah, I never, I didn't actually ever get to answer your question about how I got into hell, but oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's all right. It's it, The long and the short of it is just that uh, as a result of um, a ministry that I was a part of at the time called the Preterist Podcast, I, was int- I, I became aware of this view, and I interviewed some people and eventually became convinced. So we'll oh, okay. just skip all the all those nitty-gritty details. Yeah, you you uh, have so, to forgive me. I'm just fascinated by all this. No, so it's... <laughs> It's okay. We could. T- I mean, I, I I could literally talk for hours and hours and hours about it, and not even realize how much time had passed. Exactly. Um, so, before I explain what my view on hell is, I think it's important that we and listeners really understand what it is that the traditional view of eternal torment involves, because we 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 talk about it in terms of eternal torment, but that's a small part of the view. Um, Christians, ever since the time of Christ, have believed in a future resurrection of all mankind. And when we say resurrection, we literally mean that bodies will come back up out of the graves. Um, bodies that had died and uh, be, you know, deteriorated away, um, decayed away, uh, eventually will be given life again. Um, tombs will be emptied and so forth, just like Jesus' tomb was emptied when he wrote, rose from the dead. And so uh, this is what Christians have always believed, and what uh, around the about 400 years or so after Christ, what became really popular among Christians was the view that um, the resurrected um, lost, you know, the resurrected unsaved people that had not died while having faith in Christ, their resurrected bodies would be made immortal. Um, just like, uh, just as the saved, the saved will be, um, but the immortal resurrected believers would, uh, would go into the presence of God and of Christ for eternity, which is not sort of floating around, uh, you know, (laughs) playing harps on clouds. This is a resurrected physical, uh, perfected universe that we're talking about. Right, because heaven is just an intermediary, intermediary, like a waiting room, basically, for the the new heaven and new or the new earth right that's right whatever whatever the uh the state and experience of the dead it's it's temporary there's we we theologians call it the intermediate state because one day that's going to come to an end when people are raised from the dead and so whereas the whereas believers um are made immortal and will go into uh eternal bliss with um god and with christ like I said, about by, by the time of about 400 years after Christ, it became a popular belief on the part of Christians that the lost, the unsaved, would be made immortal as well when they were raised from the dead, and they would literally, in you know, in in physical breathing, moving bodies, immortal, live forever in hell. So much so that uh, there were early Christian authors that um, would describe the fires of hell as sort of melting off the flesh from the bones of the wicked, but then regenerating the flesh again. So for eternity, 
Yes, very creative. Uh, you know, it's a few years ago we had this controversy um, with uh, John MacArthur and stuff, the, the Strange Fire, talking about, uh, you know, tongues and stuff like that. Well, this was the original Strange Fire. This was the this was the, the fire that, that early Christians and, and Christian saints have thought would, you know, at the same time as it's causing your skin to melt off your bones, it would regenerate the, the skin on your bones. So uh, this and, – and this has been the tradition ever since. Um, there are – some Christians today that sort of downplay that, and they and they won't aren't comfortable with saying that the resurrected lost will be made immortal and will live forever in hell. But that is what they believe, and it's what the tradition has taught uh, for about the past fifteen hundred years or so. And, and wasn't so it's it like not, cemented, or not cemented, but it was very popularized by Dante as well. Well, Dante, um, I wouldn't say that he popularized it. I would say that what he did was he. Um, he painted a very creative picture of um, uh, of something about which there wasn't a lot of detail, and uh, people have sort of thought in Dante-like terms ever since. But even before Dante, um, you know, as uh, as far back as the second century, there were some Christians that were describing hell in the way that I have. Um, Augustine did it, Tertullian, I think it was, did it, um, and you know, many, 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 many Christians since. It's just that Dante. You know, there were there weren't a whole lot of details, and aren't a lot of yeah. whole lot of details about hell. And Dante sort of made a creative picture out of it. Because I was going to say, it's because didn't all of them essentially not pull it out of thin air? But there's no because the Jews originally just believed in like Sheol, right? Like, did they even they there? When did like the concept of hell even come around? Well, when you say the concept of hell, do you mean the the eternal eternal torment? torment, Yeah, right. Well, so um, there were some Jews in the time of Christ that believed in some sort of eternal torment. Uh, They didn't think that it was going to happen um, to resurrected uh, unrighteous people. They thought that it would happen in, like you said, in in Sheol. um, You know, or they, yeah, they they thought that it would happen in Sheol. But but there were also many Jews at the time of Christ that thought that the um, that wicked you know, unrighteous people would be annihilated as well. Hmm. So it's not that it's not that this originated after the time of Christ. It's that there was a, a variety of views when Jesus when Jesus came on the scene. Um, but what the language that he uses um, w- is language that most closely resembles the kind of language that uh, Jews who believed in annihilation would have used. He used, for example, he used the word Gehenna, which in um, Greek, which is a Greek. Uh, transliteration of the Sheol, uh, or sorry, of the of the uh, Old Testament's the, the Hebrew Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, uh, and you see this in places like Jeremiah seven, where God says that the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom would one day become the Valley of Slaughter, where the corpses of God's enemies would be left unburied and consumed by fire and by maggots. This this picture of the Valley of the Son of Hinnom is what Jesus is Jesus is pointing his hearers to in his day. Um, when he uses the word Gehenna, so it wasn't the Rob Bailey in town trash dump. That's right, exactly. the the trash th- the trash dump theory, uh, as far as scholars can tell, was a view that um, be- was popularized after the time of Christ. In the time of Christ and before, it, the, it was mostly associated with child sacrifice from the time of Molech, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and it was a place where corpses would be thrown um, that that didn't have proper burials and so forth. So it was a place not of trash, 
but of death and of destruction and decomposition and worms and you know maggots and fire and stuff like that. Okay, so that's um, a, a pretty obvious picture. So what are the what are your I would say obvious objections to unless you you weren't done defining eternal conscious torment, but well, what 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 are the reasons that is just not even right? Sure, yeah, and, and what it boil and what it boils down to is. Um, the Bible does not teach that uh, the lost, when they are resurrected, will be made immortal. Um, immortality, according to the Bible, is something that God gives as a gift to people that uh, place their faith in him and in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and you see this literally from cover to cover in Scripture. And so, for example, you see in the early chapters of Genesis, you see Adam and Eve, um, after they sin— they are banished from the garden so that without having access to the tree of life, they won't be able to eat from it and thereby live forever. And then sure enough, because they don't have access to the tree of life, hundreds of years later, they eventually die. The tree of life makes a reappearance in the Bible at the opposite end of, of Scripture in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, but only the saved in that part of scripture have access to that tree. The point being that the saved will be granted immortality and eternal life, not the lost. Um, and so you have uh, Jesus in, in Luke 20 saying that the sons of the resurrection, that the people who are deemed worthy of being resurrected unto eternal life won't be able to die anymore. But the implication, of course, is that the lost will be able to die. You have Jesus saying in John 3.16, or, or John saying in, jo in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Um, and, you know, the Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, these and numerous other passages all indicate that humans, ever since the fall, at least, are by default mortal and will die and will not live forever, but that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ when they die will one day be resurrected uh, and given immortal bodies so that they can live forever. This is what the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. It's about resurrected believers putting on immortality and imperishability so that they will live forever and never die, um, so that they can inherit the kingdom of God. But and that, nowhere. And that, and that's, that's the conditional immortality. Right. So you used the word annihilation earlier, and that's because uh, that, I'll explain why that term is sometimes used to describe our view in a moment. But I prefer the phrase conditional immortality because whereas the doctrine of eternal torment says that immortality is unconditional, everybody is or will be made immortal, um, some in heaven and some in hell. Uh, the Bible teaches that immortality is a gift that is conditioned, uh, and and in order to meet that condition, you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the two, the two that I can think of offhand, and you can tell me the pushbacks to them. The two verses where the one where it talks about the, their worm doesn't die, and the other just I can't, I'm really bad at quoting, but the uh, it, it <laughs> uses the word eternity, and I guess the linchpin is like whether that word. Like, cause it, wasn't there not even a word for eternity in Hebrew? Well, um, there are some scholars who would argue, yeah. So first of all, the the Hebrew word olam, uh, which is often translated eternal or forever or whatever, um, I don't think that the uh, that Hebrew speakers that you know that the authors of the Old Testament would have necessarily understood that word to mean forever. 
But in the Greek, um, you have the adjective ionios. Um, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says these will go into eternal life. That's ionios, you know, uh, ionios life. Uh, and these the others will go into ionios punishment. I think that word is eternal. Um, and I don't dispute that the punishment is eternal. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, but you're referring to there, there are some people who hold my view who would argue that those words don't, in fact, mean forever. They mean something like going on for an age. That's not my view. Um, so we'll come to how I uh, explain passages that use that word in a moment. But the first verse that I want to uh, talk about is the one that you just mentioned. You, you, you quoted from a part of Mark 9:48, where Jesus says, uh, "In Gehenna, their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched." Um, and this is—it's funny that you mentioned that because this is actually the verse that uh, first got me thinking that perhaps my belief in eternal torment was misplaced. Um, because when I was talking to somebody about this topic, somebody who, as it, as I would discover, held, held my held the view that I have now, this is the first verse I went to to um, argue against the view that I now hold and that, and that my friend had at the time. Um, and I said, look, here Jesus says the fire won't be quenched and the worm will not die. How do you explain that? And what he pointed me to was the fact that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 66, verse 24. And there, it's explicitly said to be the corpses of God's slain enemies that are being uh, consumed by fire and by maggots. These are not living, conscious people writhing in agony. These are corpses that are being eaten up by fire and by maggots. Why do you think um, the wording in the is, Old Testament is... and in the New, a fire that can't be quenched is a fire that can't be put out. You can't, um, you can't extinguish it. And what happens when you can't extinguish a fire? Well, it burns up whatever's in it. You know, imagine imagine that you were at work or something and you got a call and um, the fire department was telling you, hey, we're trying to put a fire out at your home. So you rush home and you see, you get home and you see that your house is burned down to the ground and there's smoke rising from it, from the, the ash heap that was once your home. Imagine if the fireman came and told you, hey, just wanted to tell you, uh, you know, um, you'll you'll be really excited to hear that we put out your fire. Well, no, they didn't put out your fire. That's why your house is, has been reduced to nothing but ash, because they failed to extinguish the fire. And that's exactly what we see in both the Old and New Testament, is that a fire that won't be quenched completely burns up. You have passages in Ezekiel, Ezekiel and Joel and Amos where God's fiery wrath is said to not be quenched, and as a result, it burns things up. You have uh, the New Testament in places like Matthew 3 where fire that can't be quenched burns up um, – uh, weeds, okay? So fire that can't be quenched, because it can't be quenched, will completely burn up. It, you, you can't put it out before it does its job of completely burning things up. And you have the same idea with this worm that won't die. It's a, simil it's a picture similar to the one that I mentioned a moment ago in Jeremiah 7, where these um, scavenging birds and animals uh, wouldn't be frightened away from the corpses of God's enemies. In, in, mm, the, in the Hebrew okay. culture... Um, when when a loved one's uh, when a loved one's corpse wasn't buried, um, you know the natural tendency was for scavengers, beasts, and birds and things to to try and eat the corpse up, and and Jews would try to scare those scavengers oh. away to to sort of protect yeah. the honor of their dead loved ones, and and what because it was a sh it was thought of as being shameful and contemptible for cor for uh, people's bodies to be eaten up. So he's basically but saying what this you, won't, you won't even be able to do that. Jeremiah 7 and Isaiah 66 is that you won't be able to stop uh, the bodies of God's enemies from being completely eaten up. So this passage, so what, what immediately 
uh, or, or what really struck my interest in this topic and what got me first down the road to where I became, where I've come now, was in fact this passage because it, like several others that we can look at, um, it has often throughout church history been used to defend the idea of eternal torment. But when we look at it actually more closely, we discover that it's better support for my view, which is that the the resurrected lost won't be made immortal and live forever in hell. They'll be killed and they'll, their bodies will be destroyed, contrary to the doctrine of eternal torment. So where does? Uh, 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 hold on, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think you, I turned volume down. Go ahead. You uh, might have tried to interrupt me there, and I think I, I accidentally I, had my volume down. So I'm I sorry. I did. I was like, man, Chris is just not a nice guy. I was like, okay. I mean, I'm trying to talk to you, but that's fine. <laughs> I accidentally turned my volume down. Okay, that's good. Um, so the a pushback I hear from um a common argument against it is so how does judgment come into play then? What sort of punishment, quote-unquote, awaits the wicked, quote-unquote. Yeah, um, and I don't, I frankly don't understand, or I've come to struggle to understand, let's just put it that way, how this question even gets asked. Because how, you know, in, in our um, legal system and in legal systems around the globe for thousands of years, what has been the punishment reserved for the most severe of crimes? What has been the most severe penalty uh, that governments have thought of and, and and inflicted upon people when they commit the worst crimes imaginable? Capital punishment. That's exactly right. So what is the judgment that we're talking about? We're talking about capital punishment, execution, a, death. A um, capital punishment, yeah. That's right, exactly. You know, um, when a person dies, uh, especially a believer in this life, that pun that death is not eternal. Um, it's one day going to be reversed at resurrection, and the saved, when they're raised, will be made immortal and will live forever. So their death is temporary. But when the lost are raised, and they are judged, and they are sentenced to an eternal punishment, that punishment won't be life in immortal torment. It will be death and death forever, unlike uh, the, this temporary death that we're accustomed to now. And the reason, going back to your the word you used earlier, annihilation, the reason why, why we sometimes use that word to describe this form of capital punishment is because in this life, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear men who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. So if human beings have immaterial souls that go on to exist consciously after this first death, Jesus goes on in that passage to say, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Ooh, and so, yeah, if, point. so if humans are conscious between death and resurrection, when the lost are destroyed in hell, it won't just be their bodies that are killed and destroyed. It'll be their souls, too. They will be completely gone forever. And that's why it's sometimes called annihilation. Does it speak to where the unsaved go when they die right now? Uh, conditional, uh, conditional immortality and annihilationism uh, do not. Um, the, the the community that I'm a part of that you know holds to conditional immortality or annihilationism has some people like myself who don't think that people are conscious between death and resurrection. Right. And then there and then there are plenty of them that do. It's just kind of like got, you die and then wake up for the resurrection, like it, with no time passing, essentially. That's my view, but I came. I started to become convinced of that before I became convinced of this view of hell. Um, and there are other Christian uh, people who hold to this view of hell that don't think that people are unconscious between death and resurrection. Um, and so this is uh, this is really sort of a, a side issue that Christians of all varieties can discuss. What what is the nature of existence between death and resurrection? We can have that debate. Um, what we're talking about here is not 
directly related to that question because what we're talking about is what happens after resurrection. Right. Um. Oh, what was I going to say? I'm good at derailing conversations. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, I've got to go in so many directions. So, well, and it is... I can see the whole idea of eternal conscious torment. It it's it fosters this environment in Christianity of we're in, you're out. And I, I feel like a lot of people have this mindset of, well, if I have to suffer in, in, in their mind, if I have to suffer and do good, you know, I'm doing this for reward and you're going to be burning in hell. Like, I've, you know, that sort of attitude. And I like I can see how it's, very toxic and why anyone would want that to be true is becoming way beyond me and why do you think it's not if the scriptural evidence is there why is it not more widely accepted like why do people hold on to eternal conscious torment Uh, well first of all a lot of christians simply haven't um, been exposed to the the case for conditional immortality. Most Christians that have some sort of vague familiarity with this view associate it with Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists uh, and some other groups, and they think that anyone who holds this view is either one of those uh, questionable uh, groups or cults in the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they or They, they do, that. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't. I don't think they believe that the that the damned will be resurrected, um, and so they don't believe in an eternal hell. They believe that what few people or beings aren't um, don't end up either on earth forever or in heaven forever will be completely and totally destroyed. Um, Seventh Day Adventists are closer to what we conditionalists believe in that they also think that the the unsaved will be resurrected just like we do and the Jehovah's Witnesses don't. Um, but like but like evangelical non-Seventh-day Adventist uh, conditionalists, Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists also believe that um, at the final judgment, the resurrected loss will be totally destroyed like we think they will. Um, but in any event, uh, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, and I don't think that they're um, a heretical cult. I do think that's the case with the Jehovah's Witnesses. But the point is is that most Christians that have some vague familiarity with our view associate it with these groups or with liberals and people who just can't stomach the idea of eternal torment. And so they think that, oh, we must, we just must be trying to find some way to shoehorn a nicer idea into Scripture. Mm, um, but well, except that there are those of us, including me and including even Augustine, who actually think annihilation is a worse fate, a more severe fate than eternal torment? How so? Um, because because it, even even in uh, eternal torment, you're still alive. You mm. you've still got life, and I think life is incredibly valuable, even when it's um, full of pain, even when it's full of sorrow, even when it's full of regret. There's a reason why I'm opposed to abortion and euthanasia and so forth, and it's because I think there's something precious about life in and of itself. Well, and I- and. I think that's some people's like death is too easy for Hitler. Like that that's I think that's some people's pushback to that is that they believe and I'm I guess if I'm honest, I would probably much prefer to just go out of existence than to I don't man, that is an interesting philosophical question. 
Hmm. Well, I think I think I think the point is is that it's a, it's a subjective question. Yeah, you have you have you have Augustine uh, confirming what other what earlier uh, Greek authors Greek historians like Plutarch said, which is that to a lot of people um, they would much rather live forever in torment than be annihilated. Um, you have much more recently people saying the same thing, like me. But then there are also voices that go the other way, who who say, no, I would much rather die than be tormented forever. So it, that's a subjective question. But because people assume that the only reason why anybody would want to believe in what I believe is because they can't stomach the idea of eternal torment, they assume that we're just trying to – we're either outright denying scripture and its authority and its truth or we're just trying to twist it into being – meaning something that we'd rather it say. Um but that's not the case at all. So, but in any event, that's one reason why um, the my view has not gained a huge acceptance yet. But another reason is because there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, there are, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this topic and why I do so much work in this topic. If this if this situation I'm about to describe changes at some point in the not too distant future, my emphasis in this area will probably I'll probably move on and and focus on something else, because the problem the thing that I think um, the the thing that drives me crazy and that really grieves me and I think it grieves God's heart is that. You have the Christians are very divided on this topic. You know, you, you can have uh, uh, Calvinists like me and Arminians uh, on the other side of the debate, and even open theists to, uh, in, to some degree can enjoy fellowship with one another. Um, they can go to school with one another. They can go to church with one another. Same thing with, say, people who believe in tongues and people who don't. Um, same thing with people who believe in, uh, you know, take, for example, my my views of uh, the end times versus the left behind type people. These and plenty of other debates within Christianity don't cause division. Yeah, they cause right. disagreement, but people can still enjoy fellowship and unity on the essentials of the faith, even though they disagree on these topics. For some reason, this one is is not you know, it does not fall under that category. Instead, you have ministries like Answers in Genesis. I, I, I'm a young Earth creationist, which makes a lot of people crazy. Uh, but but I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of Answers in Genesis. But Answers in Genesis will force and has forced people to resign from that ministry if they become convinced of this view of hell. You have That's crazy. It is crazy, and it's not just Answers in Genesis. You have schools uh, that you, you know the um, Biola University down there in California, which mm -hmm. has an incredible apologetics program. You cannot attend their seminary if you hold uh, uh, if you hold to this view. Um, you have schools that you can't teach at if you hold to this view, and you have churches that you can't be you can't be even members at if you hold to this view. That doesn't um, make any sense. Of course not. Of course, it doesn't make any sense. But um, that is the status quo. Now, here's the point that I'm getting at. Imagine that you were a teacher at one of these schools or a pastor at one of these churches or a volunteer or employee of one of these ministries. And all of a sudden you start you become convinced of conditional immortality. Uh, or or, or you, you are presented with the case for conditional immortality. Um, you know that if you become convinced of this view, and you tell anybody about it, you're likely to lose your mm. very ability to care for your family. Yep. Um, imagine the kind of pressure that puts on people. Imagine the kind Enormous, of pressure pastors. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so I think that these are two among many reasons why my view has not yet caught on. But the tide is changing. Um, yeah, increasingly, I would say so. 
Yeah. So so I, I don't think that this will continue to be the case for another couple of decades. Um, but until that changes, this is going to continue to be a focus of mine. Now, do you think that there is an eternal hell for the angels that it speaks of? Because I'm of the belief that I'm a big Nephilim guy, too. So we can do that some other time. Uh, <laughs> that when Jesus went and preached to the spirits in chains, that those were the rebel angels. And then the lake of fire being reserved for Satan and his angels. Well, so there's a number of different passages that you've sort of alluded to there. Um, the, the passage about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison is one uh, that Christians understand in a variety of different ways, regardless of what they think about hell. And so I'm going to put that passage aside, and I'm going to put, you know, to whom Jesus preached when aside, and, you know, maybe we can do another another show on that topic. The, the key question is, what does it mean um, when Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, that the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, and what does it mean that in Revelation 20, the this seven-headed, ten-horned beast and this two-horned false prophet and this dragon identified as the devil are thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever and ever? Um, there are some conditionalists who would say that these two passages do, in fact, teach that demonic beings uh, like the devil and his angels will be tormented forever and ever. That is not my view. It's not our view at Rethinking Hell uh, for a variety of reasons. Our view is that the devil and his angels will be completely destroyed along with uh, sinful, unrepentant human beings that, that have not placed their faith in Christ. Um, and there, there are, I mean, we could get into Revelation, for example, and what that, um, what those texts mean. Um, but again, or, or along the same lines as this biblical teaching that only the saved will be made immortal, the, the biblical picture of eternity is also one in which the entire cosmos, the entire creation, the entire created order has been completely purged of sin and of evil and of suffering and of and of darkness. Uh, and so if even – so let's say that all human beings that aren't believers are destroyed, but demonic beings continue to exist in, in, uh, in torment, then you still have some pocket of the universe, some part of the created order – which still bears the stain of sin and of evil and, and, and still has things being suffering in it. And I don't think that's consistent with the biblical picture of eternity, let alone these passages in Matthew 25 and, and Revelation. So, but, but as I mentioned, this is one area where conditionalists have some level of disagreement internally, some thinking that demonic beings will be tormented forever and some, and some not thinking that. Well, and you kind of, um, in a roundabout way, this is kind of, I just want your opinion on it. So, if the um, the new heaven and the new earth, what is I've wondered like what is to keep us if we're not going to be robots? What is to keep us from the whole cycle starting over again? Yeah. So first of all, um, there's there's a whole when you use the word robots, you're you're alluding to a whole another topic that we could do if you wanted on another show. Uh, you know, the debate between Calvinists like me and Arminians uh, with whom I disagree. Um, we understand <laughs> the nature of freedom differently. We understand uh, you know the nature of God's sovereignty differently, and so forth. But let's just put that debate aside and. You know how how can human beings uh, exist forever in the new heaven and new earth without sinning, um, and, and like you say, not not being uh, not the cycle starting over again if they're not um, programmed, you know, to re to respond in a certain way. And and the, and my answer to that is uh, is twofold. First of all, um, the uh, ever since the fall, 
human beings have been conceived with a sinful nature. Um, we see that in uh, the Psalms, for example, where David says uh, that you know uh, that I was I was conceived in sin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, inside my mother's womb, um, you you have uh, in the book of Romans, Paul saying that uh, um, people died between Adam and Moses, even though there wasn't a law because they were uh, they sinned in Adam. So human beings are born, and you know, again, that's a whole other topic we could discuss. But the point is, is that biblically, human beings are predisposed. Uh, to sin. We are conceived enemies of God at enmity with him. We, we hate God until, um, you know, either if you're an Arminian and you believe in libertarian free will, then you think that somehow God sort of woos you and finally changes your mind and then you commit your, yourself to Christ. Whereas if you're a Calvinist like me, you think that God changes your heart uh, even while you're still um, in sin. And as a result of that, you turn to Christ. Um, but the point is, is that Number one, human beings are prone to sin ever since the fall because we're born with that nature. But in the but in when we are uh, when we are made immortal and imperishable, the Bible says that this tendency to sin will be gotten rid of. So we won't have a sin nature anymore. We won't have the old man, the 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 body, this body of flesh, um, as the Bible puts it, that causes us to be prone to sin. And that's one reason why we won't the, the cycle won't start over again. But of course, you're you, you'd be smart to respond to that by saying, yeah, but Adam and Eve weren't born with that sin nature. And you're right. absolutely right; they weren't created with that sin nature. However, this is where the second my second answer to the question comes in, which is that in the in the uh, first Corinthians. Corinthians 15, Paul says that um, that whereas our bodies are natural bodies is uh, the, the way that the Greek word is typically translated, our our uh, resurrected bodies will be spiritual bodies. And the Greek here, this this, this distinction, this uh, difference between natural and spiritual doesn't mean physical versus non-physical. It has to do with our appetites and our drives, our, our what it is that fuels us, you know, um, uh, metaphorically speaking. And whereas our bodies now are driven by um, the things of the flesh, when we are saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's not something that ever changes, even after we're glorified. Even when we're glorified, we're going to continue to be uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And whereas our bodies now, as believers, have sort of a taste of what it means to be motivated by the things of the Spirit, um, that will become an all, all the greater reality in resurrection. So when we are glorified, when we're made like Christ, not only will we no longer have a sin nature that causes us to be predisposed to sin, but we will also, unlike Adam and Eve, have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, motivating us, moving us, giving us desires that are holy and God-centered. And so our 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 nature will be to worship God and to, and to obey Him um, rather than uh, rather than not to. And I yeah, and I guess that's impossible to really fathom because the yeah, that's I, right. I found myself the more I thought about. Um, just a, not even uh, the playing harps on the clouds heaven, but even, you know, d- a lifetime of do- being able to do whatever you want, like eventually like would become hellish because you would just do everything for an in- infinite amount of times. So it has to be something just so beyond my current comprehension that... Not only that, but I also think that we often have a narrow... Um, uncreative view of eternity. Um, this is speculative, so I, I, you know, when, when you hear what I'm about to say, and when your listeners hear what I'm about to say, please don't uh, take me to be saying that oh, there's. I'm quoting. Um, 
<laughs> well, I mean, this is just what I, this yeah, is my speculation. That's all. Um, I've often, uh, well, not often, but over the past couple of years, it's, I've come to realize that there are two things that are preventing us from exploring the distant reaches of the universe and from exploring the depths, the deepest depths of the ocean. One of them is mortality. You know, we can't, uh, we can't survive the deepest depths of the ocean and we can't survive the long trip that it would take even to get to, uh, the nearest star. Okay. Um, the other thing is technology. We don't have sufficiently advanced technology to do those things either. Imagine if um, in the new heavens and new earth, we, when we aren't mortal, when we're immortal, and where there's no end to technological advancement, if in fact we continue to advance technologically, but, but motivated by pure holy desires instead of by uh, you know fleshly ones. Well, now all of a sudden, the picture seems plausible that we could explore the deepest depths of the ocean, explore every nook and cranny of the cosmos, but, you know, because eventually we'll have the technology to be able to do it and we'll live for the years and years and years that it might take to get from one part of the cosmos to another. I'm not saying there's any biblical uh, proof of this view of eternity, but all I'm saying is this is one way of conceiving of, of eternity in which it would take an awful long time to get bored. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. just think of how enormous, incomprehensibly large and expansive the universe is and imagine having the technology and the immortality to be able to explore it. That would take up a lot of your time if you chose to go that route. So, and you plus know, existing outside of time, we can't even. Well, but that's assuming that's assuming we will exist out of time. I'm not. I'm oh. not convinced. That so, are that's you? The case. Are you? Do you think? Um, that essentially, it's we're going to be playing by the same rules. I wouldn't say the same rules, um, but you know, you don't, you don't think the the whole plan will be scrapped. No, I I think that the idea that the whole plan or planet or or universe or whatever, however you say it, is is scrapped. I, I think that has a really low view of creation. You know, God. Hmm. Um, yeah. I don't think that the the physical order is bad. The the people who thought that it was bad were uh, the Gnostics. You know, the Gnostics thought that uh, the physical was evil and, and the spiritual was good, but that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is that both physical and spiritual are uh, good, um, but stained, you know, uh, fallen. And I think the biblical picture is that it will be restored, both physical and spiritual. So, you know, the, the Bible clearly says we will have physical resurrected bodies, and is it possible for physical resurrected bodies. I mean, keep in mind, think about what it means to be physical, uh, to have physical bodies. It means we have muscles that contract and and relax. It means we have lungs that expand and collapse. It means that we have blood pumping through our veins and arteries as our heart pumps. Um, All of these things, think of what it takes to have, think of what it means to have eyesight. It means that um, photons are bouncing, reflecting off of objects around us and hitting our, going into our eyes and are being interpreted by our brains and for, to form a picture in our minds. This is, and this is just a small sampling of all of what is involved in being physical creatures. Now imagine how in the world does any of that that I just described work without time? That's what it means to for a muscle to contract and to relax. It means that time transpires. What does it mean for heart for our heart to pump? It means that there's a time duration over which the heart pumps a certain number of times and so forth. Touché. So no, yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not a philosopher, but I, yeah, I'd like yeah, to think yeah. I'm a decent theologian, and and I just don't see the outside of time thing. That's so, well, man, I think we're gonna wind down on this one. Um, I'm gonna have to have you back on maybe a couple yeah, times. Um, sure. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed this, though. Uh, where can everyone... We'll, we'll post some links in the show notes, but where can everyone find your stuff? Yeah, um, the, our website is RethinkingHell.com. Um, you'll find there a podcast over 100 episodes strong, um, many blog articles ranging in level of scholarship from you know very sort of lay level to very academic. Uh, we've published two books. Um, one is called Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, where we've reproduced excerpts from previously published books by conditionalists like John Stott and John Wenham and Clark Pinnock and others. Uh, and we published a second book, which is a tribute to Edward Fudge, the author of The Fire That Consumes, which is sort of the book that um, remains the seminal book on this topic. Uh, and it, that book that we published is called A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward fudge both of these books you can find links to at a website called rethinkinghellbooks.com so again that's rethinkinghell.com and rethinkinghellbooks.com um, and from there, you can find just about everything you want. There's a there's a Rethinking Hell Facebook discussion group, over a thousand members strong, members representing all three major views of hell: eternal torment, universalism, and conditionalism. Get into a lot of good and sometimes not so good uh, discussions <laughs> on the on the topic of hell. So people could join that. You can follow us on Twitter at Rethinking Hell, um, and and so forth. The the thing that I hope that um, oh, and also be keeping an eye. Any anybody that's in the Dallas Fort Worth area or could get to the Dallas Fort oh, Worth yeah. area. I, I, relatively expensive oh that'd be i'd love to meet you i'm in um lafayette louisiana so that's only like a three something hour drive so yeah for sure well that's awesome yeah Yeah. Uh, march 9th and 10th we're going to be having our fifth conference we we had our first conference in houston a second one in pasadena third one in london fourth in auckland new zealand next year in march 9th and 10th it's going to be in richardson texas which is part of the sort of dallas fort worth megaplex or whatever it's called um, people can find details at rethinkinghellconference.com uh, once those details are made available, and they will be any day now. So, so those are, I would just encourage people to follow those three websites, rethinkinghell.com, rethinkinghellbooks.com, and rethinkinghellconference.com. Um, we would love to meet you and, and some of your listeners at that conference uh, if they'd want. And then maybe they can stick around for that Beer and Bible Consortium thing that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this because yeah, that's sure. going to be on March, Sunday, March 11th. So anyway, there's a whole lot. And, and look, I, I just want to leave your listeners with a real brief parting message. Conditionalists like me are not at all um, liberals. We're not trying to, we're not just uncomfortable with the doctrine of of eternal torment and trying to find a way to believe in something else. Um, To this day, I have no emotional or philosophical objections to the doctrine of eternal torment, but I am unwaveringly committed to the authority of the Bible, and I've become convinced and increasingly convinced that the Bible does not in any way, shape, or form teach the doctrine of eternal torment, and it instead teaches my view. And so I would encourage people, even if you're not persuaded by our arguments, when you see people like me making arguments purely for biblical reasons, upholding the authority and inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, um, and and we just disagree with you, maybe it's maybe it's one of these kinds of debates that Christians can lovingly disagree on while remaining united on the essentials. I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in the deity of Christ, salvation by faith through grace, uh, by grace through faith alone, and so forth. All the essentials of the faith, uh, of the faith, a conditionalist like me can affirm. So let's unite on what we have in common, and let's take the gospel to the world um, hand in hand, instead of bickering and fighting one another over this uh, non-essential of the faith. Amen to that.
So that was a good interview. It was. Yeah. Take my word yeah. for it. I will. Dude, seriously, this uh, you'll have to listen to it. Dude's a crazy genius. Um, Yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, how do you find all these smart guys, man? I don't know. I just, I just send out... Uh, I'm really good at sounding smart via email, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Actually, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, you drinking that LaCroix? <laughs> LaCroix, boy! LaCroix, boy! Um, so I don't know what... What made me think about this? Uh, working at Waffle House, I really don't. I I wrote that down. I don't remember what made me think of it, but I so I just the ridiculous times of working at Waffle House. Um, so I was in Florence, South Carolina, right? Which is like, ugh, I, don't, I can't even think of a good equivalent. Like, if. If America is a body, it's like the space between your pinky toe and like bigger than pinky toe. <laughs> like it's the worst place in the world. Um, and I was in rehab and you had to get a job, right? But so this is one of those rehabs that makes you, it was like a therapeutic community, kind of like Cinecore where you had to go out and get a job. And then like during the day, do all this shit and yeah, Did you actually, you kept your money though. Yeah. Uh, okay. for the most part, for the most part. But okay. so the the trick was if you got a night shift job, then you could sleep all day and then just go to work. So you could essentially just like bypass the whole program. <laughs> so it's like a little trick. So uh so I went to wa- I went straight to the Waffle House and I was like, You guys hiring? And they're like, Yeah, and I was like, Graveyard shift? And they're like, Yeah, and I was like, Sign me up. <laughs> like, right. When do I start? When do I start? Um so they started me as a waiter, right? And this is like a truck stop by the interstate Waffle House with like, dude, it was, the setup was just so insane. Like there was this like 16 year old girl and her 40 something year old mom worked there. Both of them worked there. And she oh kept on like trying to hook us up, which like is illegal, <laughs> A. And just like, dude, it was just like a weird like, like type situation you know just lady you're scaring us <laughs> yes you, a trailer park trap is what i think the official term is no, um like... no but so there was this like psychologically unbalanced cook like and our our the owner was dominican or something and he was huge uh-huh. dude he looked like gus fring from breaking bad if he was oh, like wow. taller and like he had that demeanor but he was yeah like, he was a big old dude Serious um, dude, yeah. So, while I was there, the three things that happened, we could act, we could smoke in there. That was also cool. So you could just smoke inside, inside dude. We were just <laughs> blowing Joe's like while we were working, but that ended up setting the place on fire. So like there was a stack of cardboard wow. in front of the fire extinguisher, and uh-huh. this kid flicked a cigarette and it landed on the cardboard and lit on fire. But we couldn't get to the fire extinguisher because the fire was between us and the fire extinguisher. So, oh, my God. <laughs> so he ended up getting, like, second-degree burns, having to reach through the fire and, you know, all this crap. So, so, you're, so you and your boy is the reason that you can't smoke no, indoors? It wasn't, yeah, 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 yeah it, precisely. I'm pretty sure this was – no, I guess this was, like, before the – 
smoking bans everywhere. I yeah, know, that was, was probably way before it. That was yeah, had yeah. to have been. I keep I keep. It's funny. All my memories is like last year, but it was like ten years ago. But in my mind, it was like oh, that was like you know like a year or two ago. No, yeah, to me, like, like 2005 was still like three years ago. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, the other thing, we came in one day and psychologically unbalanced cook was sitting there sharpening a knife, just and we're like, "Hey, man, uh, is there everything all right?" And he just <laughs> walks over, grabs a waffle pick. He has a knife in one hand. He walks uh-huh. over, grabs a waffle pick, flips it backwards. And walks toward the back and just goes, I'm going to stab that motherfucker. And we were like, oh, and he, cause he, was, he was talking about the boss. And we are like, holy crap. And we are like, we need to go warn him. And so you just hear the door and then you just hear like. And Dominican no. dude straight disarmed him and beat the crap out of him, dude. What? Like Jason borned him. Like, are you kidding? Like, no. what is he doing working at a Waffle House? I don't know, man. Nobody messed with him <laughs> after that. <laughs> and then, uh, I ended up quitting on New Year's Eve. Oh yeah, I got. Oh my you. gosh, dude! Like, I, it was karmic payback for all the times I've gone into a Waffle House, trashed, and just been like, oh, I'm gonna put the salt in the ketchup thing and like squirt it <laughs> on the wall. That'll be good. Like, it was a bunch of that, and I was just like, this sucks. Oh, my like, God. Some girl passed out and just hit the deck waiting in line, and I was like, yep, I'm out. Yeah, it's time for me to go. Time for me yeah. to go. I ended up relapsing there, too, because my uh, one of the regulars, this tow truck driver, who was also dating someone in there, and there was a weird love triangle that ended in him having his shirt off in the parking lot, and he was like, come outside. You know that crazy shit. Yeah, but he. That's how up. we get. That's how we get down in Louisiana. I would hear like people don't actually fight. <laughs> yeah. Like they just like like most other places, people just like talk about fighting and like act like they're gonna fight, but like nobody no. actually fights. No, it's, it's very weird. rare. Yeah. Although, yeah. did we you fight. see? Did you see that <laughs> video from the LSU game this past weekend where the dude got decked with the guy in an arm cast? <laughs> He he had like a ninety degree full arm uh-huh. cast, and he just uh-huh. lined up and like, like I felt bad, like took oh this God. guy out with his cast. Holy cow! Exactly in Louisiana. In Louisiana, Baton Rouge, go Tigers! Go Tigers! <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well that that wraps it up. Um, if you have any good horror stories working at Waffle House or any good restaurants, send us an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com. Uh, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, join our Patreon. Debesh, uh, sing us out. Sing, I don't, I don't sing. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you guys on the <laughs>